Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 6, 7 through 15. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debt and forgive our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, McKinley. Really appreciate that. You're serving us twice this morning. Great job reading scripture. Hey, everybody. Hope you're you're doing well. Happy uh, mid-May. Feels a lot like Seattle uh, this past week. Good to see the sunshine out today. Uh, my name is Scott, if we have not met, and uh, it's my privilege to uh, make an attempt at explaining the scripture that was just read to us. Uh, this is actually our 22nd message in our Sermon on the Mount series, and we're not even close to being done, uh, and we're okay with that because there are so many riches uh, in these three chapters of Matthew 5 through 7, but right now we're talking about uh, prayer. And uh, last week, uh, Pastor David Filson gave a sermon on this passage. This week and next week, we're going to stay in the same Scripture because the, the Lord's Prayer is just too rich. It's also too central to life in Jesus Christ uh, to just give it one sermon. So, so here's a statement about prayer. John Wesley. Tell me if you'd want to be a good friend with John Wesley after hearing this. I hold a very poor view of any Christian who does not pray at least four hours a day. <laughs> I love John Wesley, but that scares me. Um, laudable if your prayer life is that robust and that focused and that consistent, and yet I can't help but think what John Wesley would say about certain people in the Bible who actually struggled with prayer, people in the Bible. King David, uh, who is referred to by God himself as the man after God's own heart, who gave us most of the prayer book, the Psalms, right you know, in the middle of the Bible. And he would say things like, out of the depths I cry to God, my soul is downcast. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Why do righteous people suffer and why do the wicked prosper? You, you see all this angst and all this struggle. And here you've got Jesus' closest followers, people who know him the best, the people who have perhaps the most direct line to God, asking Jesus the question, how do we pray? Teach us to pray. And so it's comforting that, that even in the Bible and, and, and so many of history's greatest men and women of God have experienced prayer, at least sometimes, as an awkward thing, as a mysterious thing, as something that's hard. So C.S. Lewis uh, said this in his uh, book uh, called Letters to Malcolm, Chiefly on Prayer. It's just a series of letters he wrote to this one guy on prayer. And Lewis, of all people, said this, let's come clean. Prayer is difficult. An excuse to omit prayer is never unwelcome. 
we are reluctant to begin. We are delighted to finish with prayer. While we are at prayer, it will be felt in some degree to be a burden. I don't have language weak enough to depict my own spiritual life. This is C.S. Lewis. You know, Lewis also says, says, and I think that uh, David Filson referred to this last week, in A Grief Observed, he says, sometimes prayer is like a slam door shut right in your face. And so, what I want to do is, is approach this text uh, as a struggler, but also as somebody who really wants to lean in and who really wants to become a person of prayer. So, we are given this direct line, and, and you know, that's why Jesus gives us the Lord, Lord's Prayer, so that we can pray. But there are two thoughts today that, that I want to, you know, focus in on. There, there, there are a thousand other things that I could talk about, but I'm going to zero in on two. First is, with prayer, the pressure is off. Uh, and, and second, the kingdom is here. So, um, so the pressure is off. Um, I'll put it this way. For a lot of us who have tried prayer, and, and maybe for a lot of us who've actually prayed for a lot of years, prayer still a lot of times feels like a socially awkward moment, maybe at a party. You know, after you've been introduced to somebody and uh, you realize very quickly when it's just you and that person that you're going to have to carry the whole conversation. Have you ever been in a conversation like that where, where it dawns on you, I'm going to have to carry this whole thing? Because when I, when I ask them about them, they give me these short answers, you know, what's your name? Steve. What do you do? I'm a dancer. Are you having fun at the party? Yeah. How did you get here? Who's your connection to this group? Her. And then you're like, okay, I, I'll, I'll start talking about myself then. Hi, my name is Scott. Hmm. I'm a pastor. Oh. I'm really enjoying myself at this party. Having a great time. Great people. Great. So enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? I mean, you, you, you've been in those conversations, right? Where it's going nowhere and, and, and there's no escape and you've got to carry the whole thing. And I, I think most people who've tried prayer have probably experienced prayer that way, where you feel like you've got to carry the whole thing. And, and, and I think what's really helpful here is that the prayer that Jesus lays out, I mean, this is, this is the second person of the Trinity. This is the person who really knows how to pray. pray. And, and, and the pray that prayer that He lays out for us if it communicates anything, it's this. The material, it's already there. It's already there. It's pre-existing. It was there before time. And, and, and so, you've already got content. You don't have to carry it because it's already been carried by, by the God who's carrying you. And so, Jesus gives us a framework, and I'll get to some of the details, but but the point of prayer, and I think it's very clear as we kind of go through this prayer when Jesus taught us to pray, the point of prayer is alignment, but, but, it, but it's not maybe what we think. The point of prayer is not getting God aligned with our sensibilities, with our agendas, with our plans. The point of prayer is getting us aligned with His. The key word here 
in the prayer is your. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and so on. And even the things that we ask about ourselves, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, you know, and, and, and so on. These are prayers that will actually help us get even more deeply connected into Him. And so, so there's a God centrality in this whole thing, uh, which is reminiscent of what Kierkegaard said when, when he said, prayer does not change God, it changes the one who prays. And Luther said it this way, by our praying, we are instructing ourselves more than we are instructing God. And, and the type of prayer that Jesus contrasts the Lord's Prayer with is the way that the Gentiles preach, or depending on your, or I'm sorry, the way the Gentiles pray, or depending on your translation, the way the pagans pray. It's a more restless, frantic, carry the conversation kind of prayer. Verse 7, Jesus says that the Gentiles pray this way, with empty phrases, thinking that they will be heard for their many words, for carrying the conversation. You know, you, you put it in and God's going to, you know, something's going to pop out of it, right? You, you're, you're praying for results. It's more utilitarian than it is relational. It's more outcome-based than it is about, you know, engaging with the face of God and of your Creator and of your Maker. And there's an example of this in the Old Testament in 1 Kings 18. I don't know how many of you have read 1 Kings, but there's this, there's this story in there about, you know, two you know, different approaches to prayer. There's the prophet of Yahweh, Elijah, and then there are the prophets of Baal. Now, Baal was one of the, the false Canaanite gods, and this was sort of a showdown at Mount Carmel. I won't get into the whole showdown, except to say that the prophets of Baal were trying to get their god to, to rain fire down from heaven in order to prove that their god was real. And what it says is that all day long, they would repeat one phrase, all day long, one phrase, Baal, hear our prayer, Baal, hear our prayer, Baal, hear our prayer. Imagine that for, you know, 10 hours, give or take. And it says that they would, they would also walk circles around the altar, and then they start cutting themselves uh, to, to get a reaction from, from their God, and, and there was no reaction, and nothing happened. And there's this frantic sort of carrying the conversation, but really getting nothing out of it. You know, pagan prayer as Jesus describes it, or praying as the Gentiles do as Jesus describes it, it's more like an incantation uh, rather than a relational interchange. You know, abracadabra, alakazam, and, you know, or if you're a Harry Potter person, you know, expelleramus, and, 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 and the word produces a result. And so all of the, all of the Canaanite gods were reported to respond to these kinds of sort of you know, manipulating prayers. You prayed whatever you were supposed to pray to Baal in order to get fire from heaven, um, in order to uh, become uh, fertile, in order to, to produce children, or in order to get rain. You, you would have to say a certain, you know, set of words, and, and supposedly Baal would deliver one of those things for you. Or if you wanted prosperity and pleasure and, and power, uh, your God of choice would be 
Molech, and there are certain rituals that you would have to go through there, and, and certain words and incantations that you would have to say. Or if you were a farmer, uh, an agrarian you know, career person, and you wanted a good harvest, your god of choice would be the god Dagon, and, and you would have a certain incantation to, to pray and, and certain things, you know, rituals to go through. But what set Yahweh apart, what set the God of Jesus Christ and the disciples and King David apart is that you prayed to Yahweh not to get something else, not as, uh, you know, him being a means to an end. You prayed to, to Yahweh, you prayed to God in order to get God. You know, one of the things that Jesus says in, in, in Luke where he also, um, you know, teaches his disciples the Lord's Prayer is, how much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Like, what, what should I ask for? Ask for God. His kingdom come. His will be done. His, you know, all these things. Even Jesus in the garden, in his infinite wisdom, God, I don't want to go there. I don't want to, to bear a cross. I don't want to bleed. I don't want to be betrayed. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want you to turn your back on me so that you can turn your face toward everybody that I'm dying for. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So the kind of prayer that the God centrality of this prayer that Jesus is giving us essentially means this. God loves you more than you love yourself. He knows you better than you know yourself. And He guides you better than you will ever presume to guide yourself. Why is this prayer so centered on God stuff? It's because that's what our chief purpose for existing is. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, the chief end of human being is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Or as St. Augustine once prayed, you have made us for yourself, O God. For yourself. You've made us for you, so give us more of you. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Everything on God's terms, because God's terms are the healthy terms. They're the life-giving terms. You know, again, just look at the focus. Your name, your kingdom, your will, you know, our daily bread, our, our needs as you define them, Lord, whatever manna is for our day and age and situation. Forgive us our debts so that we can be liberated emotionally to forgive the debts of others, so we can be free from guilt and shame, so we can have the emotional resource to forgive other people and image you in so doing. Lead us not into temptation. The last thing we want to do is, is walk towards something that would cause us to walk away from you. God's terms. You know, 20 years ago, give or take, um, there was a bishop named John Shelby Spong. You may have heard of him. He wrote this book and became very famous for it called Why Christianity Must Change or Die. And essentially, what, 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 what that book um, communicated was we need God on our terms rather than God taking us on His terms. And his theory was the times have changed, and so we need to abandon the idea of biblical authority, and for Christianity to survive, we have to adapt our beliefs and our ethics and our ideas about God to get them in tune with the changing times. Now, this happened not long ago with, um, with Nashville hymn writer 
Keith Getty. You, you may remember this. There was a certain uh, mainline tribe that, 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 that wanted to uh, revise some of the words of his famous hymn in Christ Alone to take out the part where it says, on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They, they, take the wrath part out. We don't want that. That's, that's not culturally in tune. Um, you know, this is why Christianity must change or die, you know, to, to, to use the title of, of Bishop Spong's uh, book. Never mind the fact that Jesus talked more about the wrath of God than He did about the love of God. So, there's, there's something in there that we've got to wrestle with. Other departures that have happened over the years, departure from the miracles. Oh, the miracles can't, couldn't have happened. Or let's redefine our, our understanding of, of, of divorce and, and, and let's soften it and relax it or sexuality, or, or the exclusive claims of Christ to be the only way to the Father. But the irony of it is that the more relevant that, 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 that certain aspects or certain tribes of, 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 of the church have tried to be to the culture, the, the more irrelevant those tribes have become. Mainline Christianity in particular, of which Bishop Spong is a father, is dying a slow death. It is on a trajectory toward distinct, uh, extinction. And, you know, we hear all these, all these, you know, studies about how the church is declining, people are leaving Christianity, uh, you know, millennials in particular not interested in Christianity. There's one statistic that I think is important to consider, uh, you know, based on plenty of recent surveys, plenty of engagement with sort of next generation, plenty of engagement with what's actually happening in different kinds of churches. And there's one kind of church that is still rapidly growing everywhere in the world, and that's the church that, that preaches the Scriptures and does not revise it, but instead asks the Scriptures to revise us. Does not scrutinize the Scriptures, but instead asks the Scriptures to scrutinize us does not redefine the Scriptures, but instead asks the Scriptures to redefine us. You know, like Lloyd-Jones once said, you know, the thing that is going to make Christianity attractive to the world is how different Christianity is from the world. Not by trying to be a cheap imitation and a poor imitation of it. So, there's God's terms, but there's also God's character, which is the, the the beautiful aspect of this, I mean, it's all beautiful, but this is the, the clearly beautiful aspect of it, the discernibly beautiful aspect of it. You know, John Stott says that true Christian prayer is always preoccupied with God and His glory. Eugene Peterson said something similar, that prayer is skillful, skillfully supported intimacy, intense, undivided preoccup preoccupation with God. And so, here's the good news, and here's where the pressure is off with respect to prayer. Jesus gives us everything. The essence of true prayer is to become less innovative, less creative, meaning that you don't have to carry the conversation, you know, with an awkward silence from, from the other person being God, because He's spoken. He's given us the substance you know, instead of being creators and innovators, we're mockingbirds when it comes to prayer. We just 
give back to God what He's already given to us. I mean, you, you look at Jesus on the cross, and virtually all the prayers that He prays from the cross are, are, are verbatim quotations from the Psalms. And you look at the Psalms themselves, and, and you see the psalmist rehearsing the history of God, especially as found in the first books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, and how God delivered His people, you know, from Egypt and so on and the attributes of God that have been revealed in, in, in the different parts of Scripture. You see that all over the psalmist prayers as well. So one of the, the members of our church was telling me a, a while back about uh, his father, who's apparently a, a, a legendary, you know, sort of Bible teacher uh, in his church. He's a lay, lay person, but has been, you know, faithfully teaching the Bible to people and, and, and just a, a excellent, amazing spiritual leader in his context. And, and my friend told me that one, one day, not too long ago, a younger man approached uh, this older man after his, you know, teaching. And he, and he said, how can I teach like that? Like, I, I want to learn how to teach and to pray like you. And the answer was this. The answer he gave back was this. Read the Bible every day for 25 years, and then you'll be able to teach and pray like, like, like anybody because we're mockingbirds. We're not creators and innovators when it comes to this. But the beauty is that this freezes up to be creative and innovative in every other way, because what the Bible does, instead of closing the imagination down, it opens the imagination up for all the potential that's there as the image of God. It is impossible to improve on what God has already given. You know, why opt for an awkward conversation that, that you're supposed to carry when all you have to do is read the author's book and, and, then, and then start telling the author what you appreciate and love and, 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 and enjoy about what's in the book and also what's in the book that troubles you and what's in the book that confuses and bothers you. Like, make it a relationship instead of an incantation to get something else out instead of, you know, exploiting him as a means to some other end. You know, as Lewis said, you know, aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. So the pressure is off. You don't have to carry the conversation. The conversation has already been laid out for us. But then the kingdom is here. You know, the key phrase in the prayer, because this is what dominates Jesus' teachings in the gospel, is the kingdom of God. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he's, he's a very nuanced king because he's both our father and he rules the world. He's truly the king over every square inch of the universe that he's made. I love what, what Tolkien says. I think this was in Return of the King. It's in one of the Lord of the Rings trilogy books. Where he says, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And, 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 and when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what we're asking for is... For some of that healing that, that, that we know will ultimately take place in the new heaven and new earth to start happening now, to send us some appetizers that will give us a foretaste of that feast that, that we've got ahead of us, to send us some sips of water from the fountains from which we will drink everlastingly in the new heaven and new earth. Some rays of light into this dark, weary world to remind us of, of the world that, that, that we will soon live in because of the resurrection of Jesus when He makes all things new. A world where the sun will be no longer necessary because the glory of God will, 
will light up the place. You know, as N.T. Wright says, hope is imagining God's future into the present, but it's also asking God to give us eyes to see when He brings little bits and pieces of His kingdom into our present situation. Here's one example. The plurality of the prayer, our Father, give us, forgive us, lead us. There is a community assumed here, but it's not just any kind of community. It's not homogeneous. It's the same community about which the Apostle Paul says, in Christ, there is no longer any male nor female in terms of, 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 of hierarchy, in terms of distinction, uh, etc. Into a misogynistic culture, no more male and female in Christ. No slave or free anymore in Christ. No rich or poor in Christ anymore. The cross levels the ground. Levels the ground. You know, at the end of history, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people group gathered around the same throne on, on, on level ground. We'll all be equals. Equality will finally be achieved once and for all. What does it look like to, for, for the kingdom to come now and to give us a little appetizers? I had an experience recently in my own house. So we moved into our house about five years ago. After we moved in, started taking walks through the neighborhood, we, we noticed at the front of the neighborhood a sign that, 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 that tells the history of our neighborhood. It was a plantation where slaves ran the place. And there's actually a slave graveyard. No tombstones, no names, no stories, no epitaphs, just a bunch of slaves are buried over here. So this is the neighborhood in which we live. This is the ground on which we reside. And so just a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, we had an African-American staying as our guest in our home. And I felt sick for a moment because I had this recollection of, of, of the ground and the history of the ground that we're on, where less than two lifetimes ago, the only thing that would allow him on this property would be for him to be the servant and for me to be the master. And then I thought, wait a minute, isn't it a wonderful thing? The kingdom is inching forward here because we made his bed. We prepared his meals. We are going to clean up after him. And it is so right that this is so. A sign of the kingdom inching forward. Is there still a long way to go? You better believe there's a long way to go. Ask any, any minority. Do we still have a way to go? Yes, we do. But there have been inches of the reclaiming of ground. You know, forgive us. That's another central part of the prayer. This is encouragement for the weary person in us. The, the part of us that's weary in our own lack of progress. Just reading this uh, account of Samuel uh, Johnson, who was a literary giant in the 1700s, and somebody discovered his diary after he died, and, and it turns out that he struggled with, with the deadly sin of sloth. So basically, he slept and slept and slept. He hardly ever prayed because he slept through the time that he was supposed to. He hardly ever engaged with Scripture uh, because he was constantly sleeping through uh, the time that had been allotted to, to those sorts of things, and he felt very guilty and very heavy and weighted down because of it. And what you see over the course of 43 years is this man agonizing over how he'd chosen time and time again to sleep over engaging with God, you know, sort of associating himself with the disciples who fell asleep on Jesus. 
Here are a couple of excerpts. 1764, I resolve to rise early, not later than 6 a.m. if I can. One year later, 1765, I purpose to rise at 8 o'clock because though I shall not rise early, it will be much earlier than I now rise, for often I lie in bed until 2 o'clock. So for 43 solid years, all the way until the day of his death, never overcame this struggle, but did he? He was still doing battle, 43 years battling with this. That itself is a sign of the kingdom, that you're still doing battle, that you're sticking with it, fighting against the things that beset you, fighting against the things that hold you back from being everything God's created you to be. And then lastly, deliver us from evil. So if you go to the original Greek, it it actually says, deliver us from the evil one. You know, speaking of the enemy of our souls, the, you know, the liar, the deceiver, the one who wants to wreck and crush us and, and turn us away from, from God like he did with Job. And for every Job-like experience, you know, it's an occasion to, to potentially see the kingdom of God flirt with us a little bit, the future of God flirt with us a little bit to get us ready for what's to come. You know, it is well with my soul. Do you know the history behind that hymn? It was written by Horatio Spafford, a lawyer who lost his only son in, in a fire and then lost all four of his daughters not, not long after that at a, in a shipwreck. And on his way to visit or, or to, to reunite with his wife, it was just the two of them left after losing five children, on his way he wrote these words, When peace like a river attendeth my way, When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Whenever we sing that hymn in this congregation, I purposely look up and look around just to see what's happening. And time and time again, those who are engaging the rapture of this hymn are the ones who have experienced the rupture the most those who have lost children, those who have heard the bad news of the terminal diagnosis are the ones who are most intensely engaged with these words. There's something happening in the kingdom. Maybe the same thing that happened not long ago when we were invited by some some people from our church to visit their daughter's gravesite. We had no idea what would happen. They do this every year. They bring family and close friends together. And the dad, who's a musician, pulls out his guitar stands right over his grave and start, or her grave and starts singing. As if to say, death, mourning, crying, pain, they don't get to dictate the storyline. This, my friends, is a dance floor. It's a dance floor. And we're going to dance on this wreckage because Jesus is making all things new. And this song itself is a sign of the kingdom come. It's a sign, it's an appetizer of the feast that awaits us because the hands of our King are the hands of a healer. And Jesus is risen, and He will come to make everything complete and new again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is too much to take in. It's like water from a fire hose. This, this, this prayer, if we, if we dug all the way down to its depths, if we understood it fully, um, you know, like the Apostle John wrote at the end of his uh, gospel, the world itself would not be big enough to contain all the books that would be written. And so, Father, 
my paltry little interpretation here is a gaze at, at, at a couple of realities that are anything but paltry and little. That the pressure is off of us because you've already carried the conversation. You've already given us all the resources that we need in order to be faithful mockingbirds. That's how we pray in Jesus' name. That's how we pray according to your will. It's nothing mysterious. It's nothing hidden. You've revealed it. And now we can pray Scripture back to you just like Jesus prayed Scripture back to you. And we thank you, Father, for the little signs that you give us now that your kingdom is already here and it's coming in full force. As, as N.T. Wright has so eloquently written, all creation is waiting on tiptoe for you to finish off everything that stands against your reign, your shalom, your comprehensive peace and flourishing of people, places, and things everywhere. So, Father, teach us to see when you give us little signs, little signs of the big, big, big kingdom and world that is to come and that this table represents. We remember the future at this table just as we remember the past of what Jesus has done. We remember his death until he comes. Thanks be to God. Amen.